Welcome to Critical Value, the podcast from the Urban Institute that explores issues of significance for research, policy, and people. I'm your host, Justin Milner. When it comes to social policy in U.S. politics, our two parties don't often see eye to eye. And there are times when bipartisanship can seem like, you know, a four-letter word. There is one area where there seems to be some joint interest. It's called evidence-based policymaking. In fact, earlier this year, the House overwhelmingly passed a piece of legislation called the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act. The bill aims to increase the use of data and evidence to inform policy decisions. Why would this wonky-sounding policy approach represent one of the few places where Democrats and Republicans are willing to join ranks? In this episode, we'll take a closer look at what evidence-based policymaking is all about and what it looks like with the help of a couple of experts. Stay tuned. So let's start with the basics. What exactly do we mean when we say evidence-based policymaking? The term evidence-based policymaking really reinforces the importance of good, solid, independent, rigorous research and evaluation to policy makers and to program practitioners and using the highest quality research possible to be relevant to those programs and decision makers. That's Demetra Nightingale, Institute Fellow here at the Urban Institute. Her research focuses on labor, employment, and social policy, and she's also served as Chief Evaluation Officer at the U.S. Department of Labor. Now, there are a lot of different types and sources of evidence that policymakers can learn from. Demetra has a useful way of explaining this. Often I use a Venn diagram that has uh, several circles in it. It has formal program evaluations, but also performance management and performance measurement. And then an important one that includes a combination of statistical analysis and basic research, sort of background analysis, which is also critical to the body of evidence that's being built. Lately, I've been adding another circle to my uh, Venn diagram, which is getting a bit complicated, but that includes experiential evidence as well. And so that we know that if research and evaluation is going to have applicability to the practitioner world, our evidence building needs to also incorporate the experiences that those staff, administrators, and officials have in operating their programs. So it's not just taking the research and saying, aha, we have a best practice and that's what needs to be applied. But it also means understanding how that experience in the field or in programs or in agencies contributes to us doing a better job at developing and designing strong evaluations and research. Now, it may seem like common sense to make sure policies are guided by evidence, but the reality is that most policymaking is not driven by what's tested and proven to work. We thought a lot of things were successful, and when we did careful research, we found out they weren't. That's Ron Haskins of the Brookings Institution, who has written extensively on why using evidence in developing policy is important. As Ron said, there are plenty of policies and programs that governments have implemented for years or even decades, thinking they were successful. But when they were evaluated rigorously, they didn't show the impacts we hoped for. One example is the DARE program. DARE stands for the Drug Abuse Resistance Education Program. And if you went to elementary school in the 80s or 90s, you probably heard of the program. 
Maybe you've even heard this theme song. DARE was a popular program, but in several randomized evaluations, it was shown not to work. There's a problem with this plan. DARE doesn't appear to work. A Surgeon General report in 2001 found that students who went through the program were just as likely to use drugs as those who didn't. Researchers suspect that the program has been so ineffective because it targets students too early and focuses on pressures they won't face until later in life. Like a lot of programs, DARE's just-say-no approach seemed intuitive. But just because a social intervention is intuitive doesn't mean it works. But that's why it's important to test policies through research and evaluation. Evidence-based policymaking recognizes that with limited resources devoted to social programs, especially for vulnerable populations, it's important to use what we know to get more bang for the buck by funding the most efficient and effective interventions. Now, does this mean that research and evidence should be the only thing driving policy? Probably not. But Ron Haskins makes a strong case for its bigger role. If we could have a sliver of the influence and always be at the table, always get a chance to speak, invite us to the hearings, give us a chance to consult with the members, then we're in the process just like everybody else. We don't want a special seat. We don't want special influence. We want to offer the evidence as another consideration because there are plenty of other considerations that already have a lot of influence on the legislative process. By improving the services that the government provides, evidence-based policymaking can help span the partisan divide on some issues. After all, while politicians have different perspectives about the proper scope of government, most agree that the money government spends should be used as effectively as possible. And the broader trends look encouraging. Over the last couple of decades, the move toward a greater use of evidence in decision-making has been picking up some steam. Here's Demetra again. Over the past probably 10 to 15 years, there is also in some policy areas a move toward using the results of evaluation for um, making decisions. The federal government has a major role that they've played in that regard because in some uh, particularly human service areas, there is a move toward using the results of rigorous net impact evaluations to encourage the adoption of some of the practices that seem to have positive results. So we've seen that in nurse home visiting. We've seen it in some early childhood development. One of the classic evaluations that had sort of an effect was several decades ago with uh, Head Start and the importance of early education for young children and the positive results of some of the early Head Start evaluations did contribute to an expansion of that kind of a program. In 2016, House Speaker Paul Ryan and Senator Patty Murray created the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. And in 2017, they released an expansive report with 22 recommendations. This report will help fulfill the desire that the American people have for an efficient and effective federal government. Who's against that? (laughs) This report sets forth a vision that which in rigorous evidence is used to inform and shape public policy at all levels from Congress to our executive agencies. And we can get greater use of existing data while strengthening privacy and legal protections for citizens and providing them with the greater transparency on how the data the federal government collects is actually used. Ron Haskins was the co-chair of the commission. They wanted recommendations on how There are several things, but the biggest 
I think by far, was that they wanted recommendations on how they, as members of Congress, could make federal data more available to researchers, both inside the government and outside the government, to improve programs in exactly the ways that I've been describing to you. It's members of Congress trying to say, hey, we got a lot of evidence in the federal government. We store them away in our data banks, and we now want to make that available to researchers in the government and researchers outside the government. We want better procedures and so forth. One of the commission's recommendations for how to improve the capacity of federal departments was to establish the role of the chief evaluation officer. Demetra was the chief evaluation officer of the Department of Labor from 2010 to 2016. In that role, she coordinated the department's evaluation activities, supporting the research and evaluation efforts happening throughout the department. She was also instrumental in establishing the department's learning agenda, which is a process of identifying an agency's long-term priorities for research and evaluation. Each of the 17 agencies developed a five-year learning agenda that identified four to five top questions or issues on which they would like more information or evidence or knowledge or research or analysis, and then work with the chief evaluation office to identify strategies for answering those research questions that were needed. So really systematizing this learning process of identifying what's going to be most useful to programs in this field of study and then how to actually come to those answers. Yes, learning agendas are updated annually and depending on the resources that are available, the chief evaluation office in coordination and collaboration with the agencies would uh, support, fund, and initiate studies, analysis, and research that could help to answer the questions. The commission has actually recommended that all federal agencies create learning agendas, similar to the one that the Department of Labor and some other agencies currently use. In the wake of the commission's work and recommendations, Speaker Ryan sponsored the Foundations of Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which would bring into law several of the commission's recommendations. Senator Murray talked about similar legislation she supports in the Senate. We are working on legislation, and we hope to introduce it soon, to turn several of the nearly two dozen recommendations into law and lay down a foundation for more work to come. These initial recommendations, part of the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, represent important down payments on three main areas of recommendations, expanding access, modernizing privacy, and strengthening the capacity for evaluation. The down payment legislation will make sure we make immediate progress while we hear from our constituents and stakeholders and while we work with the commissioners and committees of jurisdiction on the remaining recommendations. For those of you keeping score at home, as of this episode's airing, the Foundations Act has been passed by the House, but not by the Senate. While the Commission's work was a big step for raising the profile of evidence-based policymaking, significant challenges still exist for making sure evidence has impact. According to Ron, there remains a divide between researchers and policymakers, and we must continue to build bridges between them. On the side here, there's a whole academic process of scholars studying policies and whether they work and writing about it and their journals devoted to it and so forth. But a lot of those people are not really concerned about the world of public policy. That sounds kind of funny, but I think it's true. And so we haven't thought enough about how we can actually influence the policy, have relationship with policymakers, be assured that they will at least pay some attention to what we do. 
In other words, we need to think about how we can improve the relationship between policy researchers and policy makers, how to get them talking more often and in the same language. And another challenge the evidence community is facing is that the way Congress works currently is not optimized for evidence-based policymaking. Once a program is enacted into law and funds are appropriated, there are few forcing mechanisms in place to step back and redesign or improve the program with newfound evidence in mind. By contrast, evidence-based policy is open all the time. The store is always open. We want to find out this year, next year, the year after, is the program working? Does it improve? Uh, Will it apply in location B like it did in location A and et cetera? So it's a much more dynamic model that requires constant updating and constant research on the programs to find out if they work. So it's a completely, it's against the grain in Washington. But there's also a lot more to be optimistic about. Exciting work is taking place at the local and state level. One program, the Pew MacArthur Results First Initiative, has been working with over two dozen states to build their ability to use cost-benefit data in policy decisions. Ron explains. I think of the evidence-based movement as a river. If I'm, you know, kind of uplifted, I say a raging river. But it has all kinds of different branches which are developing as well. And some of them are very, they're, they're really interesting. One of them, for example, tries to involve the states in these processes as well. And it's funded exclusively by foundations, an extremely impressive use of private resources. And they've had, I think they now have something like 26 states involved. They're, re, they're doing exactly what you would want any governing organization to do, to review their policies, assess the data. Are we having the effects we think we're having. If we're not, let's change them and use that money. This is, in a way, one of the most basic definitions of evidence-based policy. We're spending money on program A. We find out it doesn't work. Now we take that same money and we spend on program B, which has much better evidence. And within the federal government, there are indicators of a greater uptake of evidence. The Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 has provisions that require billions of dollars be spent on evidence-based programs and strategies for producing more evidence. And the President's 2019 budget and guidance from the Office of Management and Budget encourages agencies to build their capacity to use and generate evidence, such as through adopting learning agendas. In the end, these are all steps in the right direction. And this is important because of the potential positive outcomes for the American public. Let's give Demetra the final word on why this matters. I think it matters primarily because one of the questions that that we often get, whether it is from the media, from citizens, from community groups, is what, what works and what doesn't. And in order to know what works or how you might improve how government services are being done, whether it is how buses and transportation are operating or how welfare is being provided or how social security is being provided and health health insurance that in every case we can improve what we are doing as a country and as a nation and so to answer the question of what works or what could work better we really need good solid research scientifically based research to make those decisions that's it for today's episode as always let's leave with three things to remember one Evidence-based policymaking is all about making decisions and crafting policy based on what's been proven to work. This may mean that policymakers fund social programs that have an existing evidence base 
And it may mean that policymakers designate a portion of funding for social programs to conduct evaluations, which will help determine their efficacy and contribute to what we know works and what doesn't. Two, this bipartisan movement is picking up steam across the federal government and at the state and local level, prompted in part by the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking, which produced a number of recommendations on how federal agencies can use evidence in their decision-making more effectively. Stay tuned to see if that law passes the Senate in the future. And three, this matters for all of us. By using evidence to guide government decisions, taxpayer resources are not only spent more efficiently and responsibly, but the public also receives services that have been proven to work. So that's our show. Thanks again to Demetra Nightingale and Ron Haskins. And thanks to the Laura and John Arnold Foundation who support the Evidence-Based Policymaking Collaborative, a project that I lead and provided resources for the development of this episode. You can find out more about the collaborative's work at www.evidencecollaborative.org. If you like the show, please, please, please take like five seconds and hit the subscribe button on your podcast delivery service, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that we would love for you to subscribe and we would really love if you left a rating for us as well. That's how other smart people find this podcast. Big shout out to Will Shupman who produced this episode, our editor Riley Byrne, and Katie Smith, Connor Burwell, and Keith Fudge for all their help. Our theme music is by Moby. For everyone on the Critical Value team, this is Justin Milner signing off.